You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the past few years, there has been a seismic shift in the issues that have occupied the forefront of the evangelical imagination in the United States, and this shift has worked to center voices that are often marginalized. Preachers and writers like Beth Moore, Beth Allison Barr, and Kristen Kobes Dumay have spoken truth to power regarding assumptions about so-called biblical gender roles, and black and brown Christians like Jamar Tisby, Austin Channing Brown, and Drew G.I. Hart have started necessary discussions of the church's historical complicity in racist policies, assumptions, and theologies. I'm so pleased tonight to be speaking to someone who is similarly contributing to this valuable shift in Christian intersectional thought through her discussion of another facet of identity, the experiences of disabled Christians. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Amy Kinney to Christian Humanist Profiles to speak about her new book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Thanks so much for being here, Amy. Well, thanks for having me, and what a great cloud of witnesses to be considered among. Well, I I really, uh, truly believe that you're doing work that is uh, is just as important, and I, um, cards on the table listeners, uh, long-time listeners of the network will know uh, that I... Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am the founder of the Christian Feminist Podcast here on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, and I am also disabled, uh, so I, I do have a, a stake in the discussion that we're having tonight. Um, but I think because I do is really the reason I'm so excited to have read this book uh, and to speak to you tonight, Amy, because I, I think what you're doing has really positive, wonderful implications, not just for uh, disabled Christians, but for Christians who really desire to love their brothers and sisters in Christ uh, well. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's such a treat to get to talk to a fellow disabled Christian woman who loves Shakespeare and loves the church and is ready to kind of shake things up. Thank you. Uh, So I want to jump right in, and the thing that struck me immediately uh, upon first read of this book is how intentionally you use language. Uh, There's a note in the preface, uh, a note on language that I want to read quickly. Much ink has been spilled on whether we should use people-first language, people with disabilities, or identity-first language, disabled people, when talking about disability. I respect the various ways disabled people wish to be identified. Throughout the book, I use disabled people. For me, choosing this moniker is a way of shunning the shame often associated with disability and proclaiming that disability is not a bad word. I am not a euphemism or a metaphor. I am disabled. I think that that direct address is so incredibly powerful. Uh, I am someone who used to use person-first language and now chooses to use identity-first language for the reasons that you state. Uh, And so I I just loved that you kind of unabashedly came out with that and talked about that reasoning. Uh, You also coin a really wonderful term, uh, body-mind, and you 
reclaim the word crip a lot in the book. Uh, so this is a book that really foregrounds its meaningful language choices. Can we talk a little bit about what you think language's role is in pointing out ableism? Yeah, well, what a great place to start. I think that language is a repository for our bias. It can often reveal a lot of what we think and not just what we tell ourselves that we think. So I think a lot of times ableism emerges in language through euphemism and through the kind of inherent shame that people have around disability, their own and others' disabilities. So it's often said to me that I'm not disabled, I'm handicapable. Ugh. Or, right? <laughs> or I'm special needs as though my needs are not human, they're somehow extra. Or people will think that it is somehow praiseworthy to put person with disability as though disability is my roommate or my handbag. <laughs> you know, no, it's a part of my identity. It is not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be embarrassed by. And so really consciously using disabled person, disabled woman, disabled Christian is an effort on my part to name that I am not ashamed of my disabled body. And that extends, of course, to the examples that you gave of body mind, which I hear a, a lot of different disability activists using, but less so in the church as a way of thinking about expanding our notions of the fact that our bodies and our minds aren't separate, they're all connected, and then kind of reclaiming crip as a derogatory phrase or word that was used to put us down, cripple, I have been called to my face, and instead using that as a verb, as often disabled people do, as a way of thinking of how we can crip things, how we can bring a disability perspective and insight and wisdom into whatever we're talking about. Yeah, I, I love that. I love taking a word that has been used to disempower and, and using it to to empower by expanding its its meaning, expanding the context. Yeah, and hopefully that's the larger project of the book, to take something that has been considered less than or a loss or shameful disability and reclaim it for ourselves and for others to be able to say that we too bear the image of God and we too get to be treated as the full humans that we are. Amen. I think that's that's a, a wonderful goal. Um, and it, it is present in, I think, almost every part um, of the book. To that end, uh, I'd like to talk about the way that you structure the chapters with um, with interaction and uh, and the responsibility of the reader uh, kind of central. So each chapter finishes with a section called reflection and response. And as a reader, you have to, if you're actually participating um, with the book, think about where you are in those questions, uh, unpack the concepts of the chapter and figure out what do I actually think. Um, you link to several online quizzes and things where people can rate their responses and really dig into uh, unconscious 
biases and assumptions. Why was it important to you to put those kind of practical elements in the book? I think sometimes when we're reading a book, it can feel really abstract or theoretical, and it, that seems a little bit distanced from our real lives. So this is a way to bring the abstract into action and for it to be tangible things that people can do in response that are actually manageable. So I talk a lot of, in the book about ableism that I've experienced in the church and in my life. And I can, I can really predict that for some folks, that's going to be overwhelming and they're going to be with me in thinking, well, that's horrible, but what can I do about it? You know, I'm just one person. And this is a way to invite people to be a part of creating more accessibility and accommodations and more inclusivity for disabled folks, regardless of where you are or how much power you have or what spheres of influence you find yourself in. All of us can do the work of reducing ableist slurs. All of us can do the work of taking a quiz online to think about our ableist bias. All of us can do the work of noticing who we learn from and who we listen to and to make sure that we're learning from disabled folks. So it's really an invitation from me to all readers to make sure that this isn't just my story or isn't just a way of informing them about ableism, but that this translates into action. I, I think you're absolutely right that the work can feel overwhelming, um, even from the inside. So I, I appreciated how, um, how generous you were in recognizing that and recognizing that if someone is coming from the outside of the movement. If, if I'm reading this book as an able-bodied person, I am, I think, not overly threatened or overly guilted because I think sometimes I, I have trouble. It's a hard balance to strike as a disabled person who knows that any given able-bodied person who has used the wrong word or made an assumption or asked an awkward question, oftentimes those things are not outwardly malicious. And so I, it can be difficult to figure out how to say, you have not respected my entire being and self, there's something you're missing here, but do it in a way that isn't, isn't too... That, that has some grace in it. You know, you, you want to, mm -hmm. you want to give, I, as, as Christians, I think we want to do our best to, to assume the best about, especially our, um, our fellow believers. And so I, I feel like you did a really good job there in, uh, in considering where an able-bodied person might be coming from too. Thanks. Yeah, that's actually why I included the top 10 list at the end of each chapter is to add a bit of levity. And uh, this can be a really heavy topic for folks and that kind of lightens it. So these top 10 lists are everything from top 10 remedies that people have recommended to me to um, people will come up to me, strangers and 
folks at church will tell me, well, just sleep with a bar of soap and then you won't be disabled or just hit your leg with a hammer and then you won't be disabled. <laughs> I, I loved the hit your leg with a hammer thing. Like, is this right? Looney Tunes? What are we doing? Why? Yeah. What's that supposed to do? <laughs> it will surprise no one that somehow I am still disabled. Shocking. So those remedies didn't quite work. And I, why I put them in there like that is really just to invite people into my lived experience and into the frankly absurd suggestions that people give me all the time or random things that people say to me all the time just by virtue of seeing my wheelchair or my cane. And I hope that humor is a way of inviting people into considering what that's like for me to hear that day in and day out, but without shaming them. Yeah. So I, I don't think that shame is is the way of the kingdom. I don't think that shame smells like Jesus. And I think that it's a more inviting way to get people to reconsider some of the at least or the remedies or the way that they treat my disabled body, probably well intentionally, but that actually do cause harm because I hear it every single day from people. So I hope those are playful and use humor to invite people to reconsider some of the assumptions that they make around my disabled body. Yeah, I... I love the top 10 lists. I, that was the thing um, when, it, when a friend sent me uh, some material about this book uh, and I saw the first page with the top 10 list, that was the thing for me that clinched like, oh, I've got to talk to this woman because I saw myself and my own experiences so clearly in these completely unwelcome, unasked for uh, but probably mostly well-meaning conversations with strangers who, like, they think they're being nice to you, but what they're doing is, is really just kind of not allowing you to take up the space that you take up in the world. So I really did appreciate you using humor to tell people, hey, if you're speaking to someone in this way, please reconsider how it is coming across to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's laughable to put them all together. But sometimes when you say back to someone, oh, I actually don't need a hammer, thanks. <laughs> that can feel very awkward in the moment. And I think people get very offended very quickly with me saying, I'm actually not looking for a remedy today. Thank you. I'm just on the way to the library to get a book, you know. Right. And I, I think when we can recognize the absurdity and the humor in those situations, it does kind of bring us together and, and make things a little more bearable. Like my, um, you mentioned the top 10 remedies uh, list and remedies are, I think, a, a lot of this kind of un, unwelcome uh, conversation for some reason, I don't know why, but in the past couple of years, turmeric is one that I get all the time. People say, like, have you thought about turmeric? Turmeric helps. Uh, it's anti-inflammatory, and it'll make your muscles looser. So uh, my husband and I have a running joke. Um, we have this turmeric tea that we like, um, not for medicinal purposes, but just because we like spicy things and it tastes good. And uh, every time I drink it, uh, my husband says, uh, still disabled? 
yep, still disabled. <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't work. So, yeah, I just... Shocking. It is. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm rambling now, but yes, this is a, a very common thing that happens, uh, I think, more than people who are not disabled know. And so I, I appreciated the chance to kind of laugh at it from the other side. Yeah, I feel like there's a a, a podcast or uh, some sort of book or project where disabled folks need to get together and put together the kind of top 10 clapbacks to those. You know, what's the what's the response that is not shaming and not harsh, but also articulates, hey, that's not cool to randomly suggest turmeric or hammers to me. Right. I feel like I feel like we should page Imani Barbarin uh, on that on that issue. Yeah. Uh, she has probably probably covered that on her uh, hilarious Twitter. Listeners, uh, if you're not aware, Imani Barbarin is a hilarious disabled activist. Uh, she tweets at at crutches and spice and uh, is responsible for the very popular anti-ableist. Twitter hashtag, hashtag Abelds are weird, um, which is a delightful collection of these strange things that uh, able-bodied people have felt like it's okay to say to her. Uh, so I, I feel like she might be of assistance in assembling that list of clapbacks. Definitely. Uh, so... I think the thing that I was most blown away with about this book is that it is so good at so many things. Uh, It speaks to multiple audiences. It recognizes me as a disabled person, but also welcomes in able-bodied people and uh, informs them, as I've already said, in a really graceful way. Um, It's a memoir that's also a really smart piece of disability theology. Um, How did you do all of these things at once? Was that a difficult balance for you to straddle all of those things? Well, that's very kind. I, I think that disabled people are uniquely creative and innovative because we live in a world that isn't built for us. Yes. And so just... Yeah, just by virtue of existing, we have to come up with creative solutions and ways to talk to strangers and doctors and employers and co-workers and peers and people in our Bible studies and small groups about some of their misconceptions about disability. And so I think that that is one of the gifts that disability has given me is to be able to talk to different groups and to be able to use humor and hopefully different styles to convey ideas. Yeah, I I think um, definitely you're right about disabled people having to think outside the box um, because the the world is not made for us. Um, That's something that I say all the time. Can you also speak a little bit to the different genres that the book is working in? Uh, Why pair memoir and personal stories with the really innovative kind of uh, theological interpretation that you're doing? Yeah, I think that story has the power to connect with people. It brings 
different types of people with different backgrounds and different life stories together because it operates through compassion. Hopefully when reading my story, either it resonates with you and you have experienced similar as you have, Victoria, but for the non-disabled reader, maybe they haven't experienced anything similar to what we have. And this is a way to give them just a small glimpse into our everyday lives. So I think story has such power to connect us and to create compassion between us. And I think that is so much deeper and richer than pity is. That's usually a power structure. Compassion allows for us to care about what happens to our neighbor instead of just feel sorry for them. We feel their emotions alongside them. And I hope that the book is written in a way that allows for readers to feel some of my emotions in going through the ableism or the harm that has been done in various spaces to me as a disabled woman. That connects for me with disability theology because how I understand God, how I understand faith, how I live out my faith in the world is as a disabled woman. So it's not that those things are separate for me. They are so intertwined in the tapestry of what it means to be an image bearer and what it means to worship and what it means to be faithful. And I've learned so much about God because I'm disabled and through the experiences of disability. And I want to share that with others. I want people to know that I'm not just a I can't be reduced to kind of preconceptions of disability as bad or sad. I have experienced God in such rich ways because I'm disabled. So those were just kind of a natural connection for me to connect my own story to disability theology. And I also think it's important for disability theology to be palatable and accessible and for people to be able to read it and understand it who aren't in seminary or aren't a part of academia. I think that's one of the central tenets of disability theology is to make the church and understanding scripture and understanding God and talking about God, all of those things, to make that more accessible. And I think that has to be done in every possible way, even when it comes to writing about disability theology. So connecting it to my story is one way, I hope, of making it more accessible to folks who might not find themselves in seminary or might not be that interested in kind of the complexities of theology that you would study somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's important. Um, I love what you just said about worshiping and, and participating in viewing yourself as an image bearer, uh, not in spite of your disability, but because of it. Uh, I've experienced something similar. Uh, I'm Catholic now. I converted as an adult. And one of the things that really drew me to Catholic tradition and theology is the overt physicality of the sacraments. Because I, I grew up in a, a lower church tradition that... Mm. I think through no fault of its own, and I, I don't think it was trying to do this, but invariably I absorbed this kind of Gnosticism that mm. uh, that elevated the spirit so far above the body that uh, it felt like church was almost 
more ableist than the outside world because there was this different, this additional layer of your body is bad and flawed and sinful. And so I had to take some time to kind of get out of that mindset and find a theology that said, just as you did, um, that the physical is not a thing to be overcome, but that in fact, the incarnational Christ is purposefully incarnational and that embodiment is really central to spirituality and holiness and all of those things. Yes. Uh, So can you talk a little bit more about your journey to seeing disability as a theological positive? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in and around the church and learned very early on that everyone is made in the image of God and that everyone is welcome in the beloved community. And I had the audacity to believe it. And I just didn't realize that other people didn't quite believe that until I started having experiences with what you're saying, the ableism in the church that does cut deeper than elsewhere, because I think we we sell a bag of goods in the church often about this being a family or this being a community and everyone being welcome. And then somehow my body was a result of the fall or um, sinful and not to be trusted and a sign of decay for everyone. And if I just believed I could be fixed and all these things are really harmful to hear as a child. Um, They're harmful for me to hear as an adult. (laughs) And I remember being prayed over every Sunday from the time I was 11 till the time I was probably 17 from the pastors and elders of my church. And it would be everything from praying away my demons to praying for me to be given a new body, um, all kinds of stuff that really ran the spectrum of some of them were, you know, really lovely prayers about Jesus being with me in the midst of it. And some were really harming and dangerous prayers around trying to get rid of my body. And that really does something to a child. It gives you a large therapy bill as an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I might know what that's like too. (laughs) Yeah, right. And in addition to that, I think I remember having many experiences, names and faces a blur, but, you know, very, very similar thread of people thinking that I was broken or bad or shameful and me just knowing that I bore the image of God because that's what I had always been taught and I just saw God so clearly in that way. And I remember one time serving communion in my church and someone complaining because they felt uncomfortable receiving communion from someone who was disabled and from someone who was in a wheelchair. What? And, right? And I mean, wait until they find out what communion represents. <laughs> I That, I'm... I mean, I'm shocked by that, but I'm not shocked by that, you know, like, but it's just so, it's so off bit. Like, what about cutting the hole in the roof to be near Jesus? Like, I just, that, 
Wow. That is wow. Maybe pick up the Bible from time to time. But anyway, and I think about this is my body broken for you. Yes. And and how separate we must be from that. The we here being the church and society. How separate we must be from that if you can even think that thought, let alone say it out loud and complain that someone whose body is broken by the world's standards, someone like me who is disabled and using a wheelchair can't serve at the Lord's table because the broken body of Christ has to be served in a different form. That just doesn't make sense. And I think I knew just very early on that that didn't make sense. And as probably cheesy as it sounds, I just was always comforted by the disabled Christ enough to know that it didn't really matter what people at my church or people um, in the broader community told me about disability being shameful. I knew that it, it wasn't. That's that's so wonderful that you had the strength of spirit and the, the presence of mind to put those things together at such a young age. I, I know I've really struggled um, with similar feelings of, of not belonging in the church. Um, we should say that yeah. though, though this is coming out um, a few weeks from now, as we are recording, uh, it's Holy Week. Today is Maundy Thursday. And um, I, like probably a lot of um, physically disabled people, I have some Maundy Thursday issues, some, uh, some foot washing issues. Uh, I, <laughs> I have participated in foot washing services uh, in churches in the past. I have also refused to participate in them uh, because of um, reactions to the fact that my feet are shaped differently than other people's feet, um, that sometimes I have spastic reactions to the water and people mm -hmm. don't know how to deal with that. Um, so I, everything that you're saying about, um, the broken body of Christ, I've really been, uh, meditating on for a long time, but especially this week because it is Holy yeah. Week. Um, and I think a, a lot of the church is, uh, is reflecting on what Christ's physical sacrifice means to them. And uh, mm -hmm. if, if you are a non-disabled Christian listening to this, I want to challenge you to uh, include in that meditation the idea of, of the disabled Christ and, and what that expansion of, um, of a conception of God might mean. So yeah. since, since you used that phrase, uh, Amy, I want to jump into a deeper discussion of um, the disability theology in the book um, and mention a, a couple of chapters that uh, are central to expanding uh, readings of the Bible. So you talk about um, Jacob wrestling the angel, and you talk about how we see Jacob when we see him again in Hebrews uh, 11. And it's crypt positive theology like I've never seen. I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, I've read that passage more times in the past month than probably I have my entire life. Uh, because, <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> I really, yeah, it's, it's been a journey. Uh, but it's really 
it's really groundbreaking, I think, what you're doing um, with that passage. So can you talk about your reading of Jacob wrestling with the angel and how uh, it fits into the disability theology that you're doing? What a passage it is, right? It has, it's interesting and it's kind of wild. And I think that's why it has a special place in my soul (laughs) because Jacob wrestles with this angel and demands a blessing and comes away with a healing limp. And generally when I've heard this talked about, it's talked about as though Jacob gets a blessing, but God also has to kind of put Jacob in his place by making him limp away. There's sort of a punitive boo-hoo element to the disability. That's and the that's way not... I was always taught that passage. Yeah, that the the limp was a punishment, a reminder to sort of not step outside your place. Right. And what a sad view of God. And what a sad and limiting view of what that passage says, because it's not as though Jacob initiates this wrestling with the angel or is doing that that's just not really in the passage we have imposed our ableism onto this passage jacob talks about god being gracious in this passage and talks about this being a transformative moment he transforms into being more healed by being disabled he's healed in this kind of inner sense that he now stops stealing and lying about who he is, as we've seen previously, and he can finally share what he has with his brother and come to terms with who he is becoming. He gets this new name of Israel or one who wrestles with God, and it's not as though the disability in the passage is shameful or sinful. It's that the disability is part of that blessing And when we catch up with him in Hebrews 11, he's leaning on his walking stick and then blessing the future generations. I had to look that up. I was like, wait, that can't be right. If that's right, how come no one has ever told me that before? And I looked it up and that's just like, that is such a big deal. It's such a big deal to have someone in the cloud of witnesses in heaven, like using using uh accessible technology that's yeah i just can't get over it yeah and nor should we because that is part of that cloud of witnesses that is being praised for their faith and i think also being we in our moment are to emulate their faith and their faith isn't having these ideal bodies or this non-disabled bodies or being perfected in some way, at least for Jacob, blessing includes disability. That's uh, such a, such a groundbreaking um, mode of thought. You talked about the elders of your church um, praying over you. And I, I had some similar experiences growing up. Um, I remember having conversations as a child where um, adults in the church that I respected very much and who on balance took really good care of me saying things like, don't you look forward to heaven when, uh, when you'll have a a perfect body and like, yeah. Right. Um, when, and I think they thought they were saying something nice, 
But also, when you say that to a six-year-old, what mm-hmm. what you're saying is like things will be really awesome when you die. Yeah. And and and, th- and think about what that does to a, a child's uh, conception of community. Yeah, um, and there's kind of a spiritual bypassing in that too, isn't there? Because it's so it's pushing all of your hopes and dreams to such a future state that it kind of suggests that the community now doesn't have to do anything to support you as a yes, disabled person. Yes, yes, yes. Like, so that's, yes, that's really great, but we're all members of the family of God now. Like we are co-image bearers now. And what does yeah. that, what does that mean? You know, we're, we're, we pray, uh, our father who art in heaven, uh, that that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? Yeah. So, if if we are supposed to do that work on earth as well, you know that that means everyone. That means uh, inclusion. That means welcoming all uh, all image bearers of God. Yes, and it means actually making churches accessible to all kinds of disabilities without complaint, without worrying about cost, without excuses, and actually then learning from disabled people. Maybe instead of trying to pray us away, or maybe instead of trying to give us this hope for after we die, which isn't accessible to us in this present moment, maybe churches should have been more focused on how to be community with us, how to bear our burdens with one another, how to share in what our bodies can teach the church about how to be human. So let's let's talk a little bit deeper about those practicalities. I, I definitely agree that, that we should uh, churches should have a responsibility to be more inclusive uh, to their disabled parishioners as they should to their female parishioners, their black and brown parishioners, their queer parishioners, etc. Yes. Um, so I, I want to talk about some of the practical changes that you call for. Uh, you talk about the crypt tax and that Christians have an obligation to pay the crypt tax on behalf of uh, disabled people in their congregations. Can you define what the crypt tax is for any listeners that might not be aware of it and also talk about what paying the crypt tax might look like practically for Christians? The crypt tax is the way that society charges disabled people extra for being disabled. So it's the cost of mobility devices, medical care, assistive technology. All of that adds up over time. One study that I cite in the book found that in the US, disabled people pay $10,000 to $30,000 every single year in addition to what their non-disabled counterparts pay. So that's for my mobility scooter, for my wheelchair, for my cane, for all of the different types of physical therapies and biofeedback and various treatments that I receive, for the different doctor's appointments that we just have to 
go to often more frequently than non-disabled people. So many doctor's appointments that require transportation and time off work and lots of other accommodations that I think you don't think about unless you have to. Yeah. Yeah. And then even just thinking about when you've been at the doctor all day, getting poked and prodded, and then you're too tired to make dinner or to work more hours or things like that, all of that adds up over time. And it's as though the world charges us an additional price of admission for being disabled. And so in the book, I invite church communities to think about what it means to have everything in common. And one thing it could mean is to actually help pay the crypt tax for disabled folks in your community. So this could look like bringing them food, buying their groceries, giving a gas card, giving some sort of monthly contribution towards their medical bills. And I realized that even as saying that, you know, essentially we're saying, give us your money, (laughs) even saying that people can feel very awkward about about money and people can feel um, frustrated because the immediate response I think is, well, I don't have a bunch of extra money to give to people. And I totally get that. But I think it's an invitation for people to rethink what it means to be community together. Maybe you can organize a car wash or a bake sale or um, some sort of donation campaign in your community, however small or large it is, to support disabled people. I don't expect that a church, mine or or others, would write me a check for $30,000 every year. Although, if you want to send me in Victoria $30,000, we're open to that, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that'd be be great if you would like to. Yeah. I, I think, like, it can look a lot of different ways, right? I, exactly. In in thinking about my own um, current lived experience, uh, I am part of a, a ministry program in my church. Uh, I'm a Stephen minister, and that's a, a kind of lay counseling, one-on-one ministry where you walk alongside people who are experiencing um, traumatic life changes. Uh, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, Um, they recently had a new baby, they recently relocated, anything that kind of changes the uh, fabric and routine of your life. A Stephen minister uh, is a trained layperson counselor who walks alongside you through that experience. And when I was going through uh, the training for that, it's 50 hours of training, so you're at the church a lot. Um, my ministry partner, who knows that I don't drive, uh, she offered to drive me home every week, and that was an assumed uh, thing, and I didn't have to ask her. We just had that time together. Uh, She would take me to my house, and we would sit in the parking lot for a few minutes and pray for each other, uh, and that's how we ended our evenings. And so I feel like that that is her paying the crypt tax because that's labor that I don't have to think about. And it's also her making space to uh, not only make me more comfortable and give me some convenience, but also like include me in the routine of her week. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. There are so many different ways to do this. I 
have experienced this in the form of someone walking my dog or in the form of someone giving me my love language, which is jalapenos, in someone realizing, oh, you have a lot of medical appointments this week, and so I'm going to make sure that you have an iced mocha ready for you when you get home because that's that's something that you enjoy and that's a treat that you wouldn't get for yourself and so this is my way of saying I witness what you're going through and I'm going to show up and be present with you and if communities could focus more on that and less on trying to fix by either praying people away or by pushing everything into that sort of heavenly state if they could just be present with us, there are so many different ways to be present with the needs of disabled people in your community. Yeah, that that presence and that seeing is huge. I think I um, I have we disclosed disabilities. I don't know. I have cerebral palsy. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and uh, one of the treatments that I get for that regularly is that I get uh, Botox injections every three months. So um, what that means is that botulinum toxin, the kind of stuff that rich ladies get injected into their faces to make their faces not move, um, is injected into my leg muscles because essentially that part of my brain is wired backwards and so that toxin instead of making the muscles not move uh, makes the muscles more flexible and these injections are uh, incredibly painful it means that i get roughly 18 to 25 uh, needles poked into my legs every three months and uh, though it is wonderful once it takes effect the experience of the injections is awful and painful and also causes something called, I swear I'm not making this up, situational anemia, uh, which does something weird to the blood uh, and makes your iron go down. So every three months when I have these injections, I also eat a hamburger uh, for dinner because of the situational anemia. And so I had that appointment this week And uh, I told my boss, you know, I'm taking half a personal day because I have those injections. And without missing a beat, she said, hey, great, it's fine. Enjoy your hamburger. (laughs) Because she knew uh, that that is something that I have to do. And so that little, like, joking comment was so huge because she said, you know, I see your lived experience. I know this is something that you have to go through. I remember you telling me about it and, um, you know, don't, don't worry about leaving work. It's fine. Yeah. Just in that one little sentence. Yeah. I had a friend, I love Wonder Woman and I had a friend bedazzle a Wonder Woman W for my mobility scooter so that, you know, it's, it's marked as mine and so that everyone knows I'm Wonder Woman and so that folks have something to focus on and to talk to me about instead of some of those cringy top 10 remedies or advice or at least that people say. And I think really what we're getting at is most of these things take very little, they can take very little money they can take very little time, but they really take an intentionality and people people choosing to show up with you where you are 
and to not look away. Right. I, I think the, the recognition and the not looking away is, is really vital. Yeah. So I mentioned before, uh, when we talked about your reading of Jacob, that you also talk about a vision of a disabled Christ. Uh, and you argue in chapter nine, disabled God, that disabled people to a certain degree understand God in a way that able-bodied people can't because God himself uh, is in fact disabled. That is such a radical idea. Can you unpack that a little? Yeah, I get a lot of pushback on this one. <laughs> I, I am. I can imagine that you do. Yes. I think because people want to, I think that says more about people's idea of disability than it does about God or about my experience with God. I think about the scene in, I think it's uh, John 20, where Jesus is resurrected and Thomas is kind of naysaying that this happened and he's gaslighting the women and saying he doesn't believe it. And then Jesus rocks up and says, look at these scars, put your hands in my side, look at these wounds. And Jesus in that moment is disabled. He's disfigured. He has this broken body as we've used that term before. And I think it's it's really just that we don't recognize Jesus as such because we have so distanced that word disabled or disability from Jesus. I don't think from what we know of the cross and from what we know just historically and socially and from scripture itself, I don't think that this is just a teeny little scar that, you know, oh, where is it? Let me get out my microscope, Jesus. No, or magnifying glass. These are large disfiguring wounds. And why that's important is because that is the mark of our redemption. Jesus is disabled and that's the only example of that imperishable body that we have. So to say that my body is somehow less than, or that your body doesn't bear the image of God, or that we have to just stare up into the sky and hope to be fixed in heaven, doesn't recognize that if you can't have disabled people in new creation, then Jesus can't be there. That's that's such an incredible thought. And I, I gotta say, I understand why you would get pushback for that. Cause I, I mean, really? I've, 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 I've lived in this disabled body for 36 years and I can honestly say I never thought to align or compare my scars of which there are many, uh, from surgeries and, and various things to Jesus's scars. I, that never, before I read this book entered my mind in the least. So I, I, I do think it's a, a really, um, a really radical way of thinking about both our bodies and, and the, the body of Christ, singular Christ's actual body mm -hmm. and the body of Christ plural as the church and, and how all of those things relate to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And what does it mean to us that the body of Christ is disabled? 
like why is that so profound so we've kind of named that to others that feels cringy or uncomfortable because maybe some of their own misunderstandings around disability but what does it mean to us as disabled christ followers that the body of christ is disabled I, I don't feel prepared to answer that question yet because I think yeah, sorry. This, this, no, that's okay. Um, I mean, obviously it means something really, uh, really huge and profound. I'm still trying to unpack what that literally means for me and my conception of my own body. And I think really like in my thirties, the biggest part of my theological journey has been figuring out how my physicality and my spirituality relate to one another because I spent so much of my life as a young person seeing my body as an impediment to my spirituality, both just because the body is where the sin lives in so many traditions uh, and because that was compounded by um, ableism, both internal and external. And now as an adult, I have started to see that in many ways, my disability is a kind of superpower that lets me see other places where the world fails to include people. And that I can, I can use that in, in a positive way to welcome other people in. So I don't have an answer for you yet, but uh, thank you for getting me to ask myself that question in a different way. You thought you were going to interview me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot, but I I do hear in your response so much of an answer, though, and just how important it is for us and for everyone to reframe disability not as a loss, but as a gain. And to think about the prophetic witness that we bear that is something akin to that body of Christ. I think this is probably a, a, a good time to talk about the way you end the book with a vision for the future of the church. Uh, you have a lot of hope at the end of the book. Uh, even though there's a lot of a lot of sadness and a lot of kind of detached uh, sarcasm and humor in getting to that point, uh, me what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, same because you 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 have to, otherwise you'd you know yeah. uh, suffocate under the weight of of all of the uh, all of the horrible work and alienation. But uh, I, I want to talk about your hope for the future of the church and the vision you present of a truly inclusive and accessible church and what it takes to get there. So, um, so tell us that, how, how do we look forward to a more inclusive and accessible church? One of my favorite parables is when Jesus is talking in Luke 14 about the great banquet. And generally, this parable is used as an understanding of new creation or heaven or eschatology, whatever word you want to use that, depending on what tradition you're in. And this great banquet Jesus describes features poor and disabled people. 
The Great Banquet is accessible. It starts by inviting poor folks and disabled folks first, not adding us later if there's enough money or time. Disabled and poor people are accommodated, scented, without condition or cure or condemnation. We don't see that this vision that Jesus casts for new creation is a space where disabled people are fixed or changed or where poor people are suddenly made rich. Instead, we see that everyone is dining at this banquet together and disabled and poor people are invited first. Whenever I've heard this passage talked about, someone is quick to say that we're all figuratively disabled. It doesn't mean disabled people. It means that as a metaphor or as kind of in a figurative category. Are we all just a little bit disabled? Folks will say to me. I hate that so much. I, I get so that all much. the time too. And like, oh, it's just it's so frustrating. Like, no, no, we're not. And I mean, they never want to swap legs with me, I tell you, <laughs> but it's interesting. That's a kind of convenient way of reading the story because it gets you out of welcoming poor and disabled people, because that's, I think, very clearly what Jesus says in this passage. And there's even someone there who tries to get around it and say, well, everyone will be blessed. Yay. Banquets are cool. And Jesus says, nope. Uh, it is people who go out and are quick to welcome poor and disabled people that are blessed, not just everyone. And I think why that's important is because if that is one of the images that Jesus gives us for what new creation is like or what kingdom come is like, what it means for us to pray, as you say, for God's kingdom to be made manifest among us, it looks like Luke 14. It looks like a banquet where poor and disabled people are welcomed first, where we are scented, where we are accommodated, where we are not dismissed or pitied or attempted to be changed, but we are just in community with one another. And I do, I believe Jesus, I do really have hope that that can be among us, that we can be in communities that create that for one another. And the truth is we're a long way from that right now. Our own stories make that clear. And the stories of many who are not on this podcast conversation with us, that we are not welcomed and accommodated and centered in the way that Jesus says in that passage. And there's lots of examples and advice that I give in the book in those, you know, end of chapter kind of practicalities of ways that people can get there. But I think I have to hold on to the hope and hope against hope that that can be true, that we can actually be a community that looks like the one Jesus describes. Yes, thank you. I, I think that's a, a wonderful hope and, and one that I definitely share. So I think we've we've hit most of, of the high points of our discussion. Uh, as much as I never want to stop talking to you uh, about this book that has been such a liberating experience for me, uh, in the spirit of hospitality, we like to give our guests the last word here at Christian Humanist Profiles. So take 
a couple of minutes to talk about anything from the book that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to cover, or if you'd rather tell us about your next project. Thanks. Yeah, it's been such a treat to get to talk with you and wrestle with these ideas together and learn of your own experience of reading the book, writing it. It's easy to imagine what people might make of certain sections, but it's such a joy to get to actually receive that from a fellow disabled Christian. I think I'd like to end by just saying that if anything that we talked about today made you uncomfortable or kind of gave you pause, I would I would invite listeners to use that as a point of departure rather than a destination, to not shut down or shut out conversations that make us feel uncomfortable when it comes to disability. I think there are lots of really well-intentioned folks out there who have just been discipled in a way that has unfortunately been ableist. And so I would just leave us with an invitation to learn more, learn more about my story, about Victoria's, about people in your community, learn more about the access needs that you can help participate in making sure that they are met, learn more about ways to support paying that grip tax of folks in your community, whether that's monetarily or with time or resources, and just learn more about ways that you can join in creating that accessible banquet of Luke 14. Thank you so much, Amy. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, thank you listeners for listening to Christian Humanist Profiles. We are a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can follow us on Twitter at at CH Radio Network and listen to our stable of shows uh, that you can find on our website at christianhumanist.org. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>